0: Welcome, everybody, to the Politics, Politics, Politics program for Wednesday, February 9th, 2022. Your old salty dog, Justin Robert Young, joining you from Austin, Texas. Uh, This is a new one, a new one for me. Uh, You know, I lived in a few places. I've seen a few unique elements Of each place that I have lived, you know, in uh, South Florida, obviously you have hurricanes, right? You've got very intense tropical storms, storms that for other people would be very intense, that you just kind of get used to after a certain period of time. In Oakland, uh, the state would light on fire uh, at an increasingly... Alarming rate, changing the sky into various different colors. And here in Austin, for the last few days, we've had a boil water notice. <laughs> Something that I, I do not remember outside of maybe recovering from a hurricane that has ever happened. It's been in place now. We're, we're coming in on, on, on the third day. But, uh, yeah, a boil water notice. Oh, well. The unique charms of each stop along the road of life just makes the journey richer. We got great uh, uh, information and conversation for you today on the program. Ukraine. Hey, are we going to war Question mark, a new segment that we're that we we've been doing on the Sunday, Sunday, Sunday show because they talk a lot about Ukraine. So are we going to war? Question mark is uh, is now going to make its main roster debut here. Uh, This is the latest as of Tuesday afternoon. We're going to give you. What U.S. sanctions would be? How many troops are where? Blah 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 blah. On the home front, we're going to take a look at the Ohio Senate race. Things seem pretty sewn up on the Democratic side, with one big juggernaut running uh, on uh, running running for the Democrats. But it is wide open on the Republican side. And there are some pretty interesting characters involved, including a man who was a staunch never-Trumper, now doing his best to butter his bread on the MAGA side. Speaking of divides in our political consciousness, we're going to have an, uh, uh, an author on who says that not only can the political divides in this country be traced all the way back to the founding of the United States of America, but we can further understand how to heal them if we understand our past. How do we bridge the American schism? That is our interview a little bit later. But... As of this recording, there are an estimated 100,000 troops from Russia on the southern border of Belarus, which is the northern border of Ukraine. We know this based on satellite pictures that have been taken of the troops as they build up. Now, according to Russia, this buildup is part of a cooperative war game effort between Belarus and Russia that will end on the 20th. I know this because periodically I'm invited to uh, uh, be a commentator on Russia Today, the English language state-sponsored news agency And while, you know, usually my segments are about technology or whatever the uh, current sort of political, American political hot topic is, the things that are happening before I come on have usually been varied. Sometimes it's another American story. Other times it's about coronavirus or some other stuff that's happening in Europe. Not lately. Lately, it has been wall to wall to wall to wall. The Americans and the British are overplaying what is happening in Ukraine. There is no invasion of Ukraine. Absolutely not. This is not the case. What an absolute psyop from the Americans. Now, here's why people are worried. Because regardless of why the Russians say there are, there, there's a six-digit troop count in southern Belarus, 100,000 troops only a few dozen miles away from the capital of Ukraine, Kiev, not Kiev, is what we learned from the second impeachment. Kiev, that number is about 70% of what experts estimate would be needed for a full scale invasion of Ukraine. So, the larger question that I have here is beyond because Russia, what is, by any metric, the reason why Russia would want to do this? I asked this on my live stream on Monday, and there doesn't seem to be one clear-cut answer, and I will announce my biases here, I, I tend to hand wave away just the, the, the kind of Putin is evil, he's doing evil things. In fact, I've got a larger question considering, I, I feel like there has not been a more cartoonified world leader over the last seven years than Vladimir Putin beginning at the moment that Hillary Clinton's campaign email servers got hacked all of a sudden now we're talking about Russia and then it becomes the Trump thing. And I I, I just feel like we've, we've talked about Vladimir Putin as somewhere between the smartest man on earth and the most devious villain in in, in in on on the planet. I don't think either of those to me feel like a helpful or educated understanding of what may be an aggressive, an opportunistic world leader. But not quite the the mustache twirling villain that that very much I think was used as a cudgel between the domestic political parties here in America that does not mean that I don't believe he is going to invade Ukraine indeed, he's already done it you know they they had a war an all out war back in twenty fourteen. After a Russian backed president was expelled. So this is within the capability of Russia. But I just don't know exactly why now. The best that I could find is there was an essay written by Putin. It's up there on on the Internet if you'd like to find it. Posted about a year and a half ago. Wherein. Putin explains a statement he made further that Ukrainians and Russians are one people. And he points back to old uh, ancestors. And when the countries have prospered, they've been closer together when they have, and in this case, Ukraine has faltered. It is when they have looked beyond their borders for alliances with both the Germans and, the West and the Americans, blah, 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 blah. And so that's where, from my perspective, you can get the basis of what can be boiled down to Vladimir Putin wants to reconnoiter the Soviet Union. And, and this is something that they, are, that they are looking to do with Ukraine. The other side of wondering about Ukraine is exactly why would they want to pay the price they're going to pay to invade Ukraine? What is on the other side that makes becoming maybe the most alienated you have been with the Western world since the Cold War worth it? Because... Over the weekend, the Biden administration officials laid out in clearer terms what kind of repercussions would happen if Russia invades Ukraine. This includes the seizure of money and investments from oligarchs who are close to Putin. So basically, if you are a super rich Russian billionaire that owns a gas company or a nickel mine or something like that, then, you know, you might want to move your mega yacht to international waters. Maybe you're not going to be quite as liquid as you thought you were going to be. That's part of the squeeze. The biggest would be cutting Russia off from the financial system that is used by the West. This would be a pretty big red line to cross from the international community. This is the biggest thing that the double-edged sword The side of this is that the fear is Russia then goes closer to China because nobody else can move the same kind of money like the West can except for China. Now, the Biden administration came out over the weekend and said very confidently that you don't got to worry because China can't do the same stuff that the United States can do, that the West can do. Your mileage may vary on whether or not you get goosebumps when the Biden administration says foreign policy things very, very confidently. Here's the latest. On Monday, during a press conference with the new German Chancellor, Joe Biden, Went the furthest that he's gone. If Russia invades,
1: uh, that means tanks or troops crossing the uh, the, the border of Ukraine again. Then uh, there will be uh, we there will be no longer a Nord Stream two. We we will bring it in. What here.
0: is Nord Stream two? Well, Nord Stream the second is a pipeline. Underwater that delivers natural gas from Russia to Germany. It has mostly been financed by German and European money. It has been opposed by America in various different ways over the last five years. Pretty much from the moment that it was conceived, America really didn't like it. This is because it gives a big boost to a state run. Gas company from Russia. It makes Europe more dependent on Russia, Germany specifically. So it is no coincidence that Biden says this when the German chancellor is next to him. And when the German chancellor is asked whether or not Biden means what he says, he says that Germany and the United States are in lockstep on this. But what can America do? to stop a pipeline that goes from one country that's not the United States to another country that's not the United States. Well, the question there is in soft power. We can lean on our relationship with Germany that Russia cannot match, at least when it comes to this particular pipeline. Whether or not This invasion actually happens, obviously remains to be seen. You've got a lot of theories that troops are waiting until the ground freezes more to begin marching in. That this indeed is going to last until after the Winter Olympics, because Putin does not want to embarrass Xi in China where those Olympics are taking place. But meanwhile, the war game effort that Russia says those troops are there for ends the last day of the Olympics, February 20th. And so we return to the central question that we have for this segment. Are we going to war? Question mark. Certainly the Biden administration is doing everything they can to try to Remain muscularly positioned while not scaring its own populace into believing that we will spill into a full on international war because Russia wants to invade Ukraine. However, the more that red lines are written and if they are crossed, the more we are going to see this conversation become more front and center. My suspicion is that what Putin really wants to do is kind of what he did with Crimea, which is to move into a portion of the country, annex it, and then, you know, in another couple years, move a little further, annex that. The idea of him seizing the capital Of Ukraine and, you know, arresting or deposing the president seems a bit aggressive, but, you know, what do I know? Now, while that Pennsylvania Republican primary has all the star power only a television personality can provide, this week we turn our eyes to the Buckeye State. Just as those hometown Cincinnati Bengals prepare to take the field for the Super Bowl. So are the Republican hopefuls who, similar to Pennsylvania, want to vie for that rare, coveted, open Senate seat. No incumbent. Oh, Yep, that's because moderate Republican Rob Portman is retiring. On the Democratic side, Congressman Tim Ryan, who you might remember from his run for president, a few years ago, seems to be the prohibitive favorite. But, like many things in the Republican Party these days, we don't know exactly what to make of things on the red team because, well, the Trump of it all. The field is such. Former state treasurer Josh Mandel, former state GOP chair Jane Timken, author J.D. Vance, and investment banker Mike Gibbons. Unlike the PA race, it appears that all of our frontrunners have a history of recently living in the actual state they're running to be the senator of. This is the latest poll we were able to find, a December Trafalgar Group survey. It has Timken at 10%, Gibbons at 12%, Vance at 15 and Mandel at 21 The rising star amongst all of them, and the one that we're going to spend the most time talking about, is J.D. Vance. He's young. He's got an origin story so good, he wrote a number one New York Times bestselling memoir about it. And that memoir got made into a movie.
1: I promise that I'm going to do better. You, you got a right to your own life. Don't make us your excuse, J.D., Family's
0: the only thing that means a god to. you learn it. Hillbilly Allergy, which you can watch on Netflix, got Glenn Close nominated for Best Supporting Actress playing J.D. Vance's grandmother. The book tracks J.D.'s childhood in the Appalachian region of Ohio. Its themes of poverty and drug addiction presented a elegant window into the world of quote unquote white voters without a college degree, end quote, that at the time it really was rising to prominence was a big topic, specifically because that demographic was about to power the biggest upset in presidential history. Now it's around that time that J.D. Vance begins to get a little popularity for himself. He's a celebrity. He gives interviews. And in those interviews, he's pretty staunchly anti-Donald
1: Trump. J.D. Vance, in his own words. I'm a never-Trump guy. I never liked him. As somebody who doesn't like Trump, I might have to hold my nose and vote for Hillary Clinton. I didn't vote for Trump because I can't stomach Trump. I think that he's noxious. Him being really outrageous and offensive.
0: On Twitter, Vance called Trump, quote,
1: reprehensible, an idiot, and Vance loves Mitt Romney. I'm a never-Trump guy. That's the real J.D. Vance. Club for Growth Action is responsible for the
0: content of this ad. As you might surmise from the tone of that clip, It's an attack ad. That's because J.D. Vance no longer thinks Trump is an awful, odious figure, and he's being attacked for flip-flopping. If you want to hear what he sounds like now, here's a more recent
1: clip. I asked folks not to judge me by based on what I I said in 2016, because I've been very open about the fact that I I did say those critical things and uh, I regret them and I regret being wrong about the guy. I think that he was a good president. I think he made a lot of good decisions for people. And I think he took a lot of flack. And as you probably appreciate, Alicia, you know, I've, I've taken a lot of flack myself over the last few years for standing up for the president's voters, but also standing up for the agenda. And I think that's the most important thing.
0: And such is the vexing problem for Mr. Vance. Because in Ohio, where Trump won by eight points in 2020, bad words about Big Chungus is a real no-no. The negative ad that we played before is from Club for Growth, a group backing the current polling leader, Josh Mandel. This week, a PowerPoint from a pro-J.D. Vance super PAC flashed big, big warning signs about the state of his campaign. Specifically, how hard the reminders of Vance's attacks on Trump were sticking with very conservative voters and MAGA diehards, a.k.a. the people who are going to decide this race. The dire warning is that Vance desperately needed to beef up his right flank. And that PowerPoint, which was authored in January, might have been the impetus to land endorsements like this one.
1: I tell you what, this is exactly what Ohio needs to send to the U.S. Senate. You want to know what? I'll tell you why mcconnell needs the message Woo! ohio is not going to tolerate rhinos anymore ohio is not going to send somebody up there to represent them in the senate to keep on going along and getting along with the uniparty in washington ohio needs to send JD vance
0: that's the voice of marjorie taylor green if you didn't recognize the voice immediately listen to the words she's saying Sending Mitch McConnell a message. No more rhinos. This is all dripping, dripping bloody red meat for the MAGA crowd. Which, of course, is only the appetizer. Because the main course is this. Who will be blessed by Trump? In 2021, Mandel, Timken, and Gibbons all pitched themselves to Trump against each other in the same room with the man himself in a moment that was reported as a real-life apprentice boardroom scene. Vance has also met with Trump, but he was facilitated a meeting by Vance's real ace up his sleeve, billionaire Peter Thiel, who not only has been a force in political donations, but seems to only be getting more political by the second. This week, Peter Thiel stepped down from his position on the board of Meta, formerly Facebook. Part of the reason why was to spend more time helping to elect candidates during the midterm. One of those is J.D. Vance. Is that enough to get the Trump endorsement? Will Vance need to start outpacing Mandel before it happens? Can one of the other upstarts make headway before the top two square off? We know that the primary vote is on May 3rd, which means between now and then, we're going to see some big ad spends. So far, Vance hasn't spent a dime hitting his opponents or attempting to correct the record about himself. Here's all we know is it's about to get sticky in Ohio. Welcome to the jungle baby well, we got your in the jungle. Welcome to the jungle politics, politics. Ladies and gentlemen uh, each and every week I come to you And remind you that you are the reason why this happens. There are no ads on this program. There are uh, no, no therapy, no mattresses, no two best friends who decided to do a thing. There's just you. You who recommends this show to their friends. You who leaves a review and rates it. On the podcast platform of your choice. You, who at the end of each episode respond to the call to thank our guests for coming on, therefore continuing to give us a good reputation and expand the reach of this program. You, who heads on over to seriously.com. That is where you can go ahead and give us three bucks. At $3, you begin to get two bonus episodes each and every week. The Sunday, Sunday, Sunday edition where we go over all of the Sunday shows and I give you a Rosetta Stone. Begin your political week by knowing what the governmental and media class believes are the biggest stories going forward. The Thursday late edition that covers the latest news That we cover on this show because the Friday edition is recorded a little earlier. That means that you, especially when we're in volatile times right now, I mean, look, if Ukraine gets invaded on a Wednesday, Thursday is going to be the first time that I talk about it. Guys, it's all there. Uh, uh, Thank you to everybody who supports us in a non-monetary fashion. Double thank you to everybody who supports us in a monetary fashion because at the end of the day, we can't do the trips. We can't do the, the help. We can't do the larger episodes unless you guys uh, uh, pay the bills. So I appreciate that. Head on over there, takepoliticsseriously.com. Have you guys noticed that it seems more en vogue than ever to openly predict a civil war? By polling, partisanship has increased and online clashes are certainly constant. But if we're going to understand our modern political divide, it would probably help to understand where it came from. According to one book, the answers to that lie in the founding of our very country. American Schism, how the two enlightenments hold the secret to healing our nation is available now and author Seth Radwell is here to talk more about it. Welcome to the show Seth. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be with you, Justin. Your book American Schism uh, says or the, the 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 premise of it, correct me if I'm wrong, is that the divisions that we see now that we talk a lot about, and certainly uh, we political media and and media probably writ large spends a lot of time talking about is nothing new. In fact, they are built on fault lines that have been here since certainly the founding of the country and probably before. Uh, what are
1: those fault lines? Well, that's that's really the overall thesis, because it's very true that while it feels like we're so divided today. We've always, through the course of our history, had deep divisions. Now, the original fault lines go back to, as provided and discussed in the book, the founding when there were two unique visions for what America should be coming out of that age, which was the Enlightenment, of course. And there were kind of two camps. And that's what's described in the book. The book goes back, in fact, and traces how those evolved. But but for your, for your listeners to simplify it, I mean, one camp was very much believing in what was an aristocratic elite form of government, where uh, the government was really run by those who were educated and enlightened, like themselves. And then there was another camp, much more influenced and, and, and driving towards an egalitarian, decentralized government of the people, which was egalitarian. And those two visions were competing at our founding. And what the book shows is that over our history, there's been kind of a back and forth between those two different poles of what our government should look like.
0: It, so, so we're starting at the age of enlightenment and the, the, the real differentiator there is facts, reason, and evidence, right? This is, right. this is what kind of uh, uh, very much shapes philosophy and scholarship and art and everything. Right. and, uh, uh america obviously a product of that in terms of the 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 lineage uh but when you say e- egalitarian society versus uh, uh a a kind of educated class like uh, is is that Contrary to to democracy, like, is is there an idea of of like the educated class being a more permanent thing because they are learned and they know better versus a more populist? Even if people get the wrong answer, it's at least something that everybody agrees on more. Is is that kind of where where, where, where we're looking at? Well, that's that's
1: that's one of the key tensions. Yes, exactly. So today in today's vernacular, Justin, it would be described as kind of the elite establishment governing versus the more populist movement that actually today is both on the right and the left. I mean, yes. Think of it in terms of like the, the Bernie Sanders folks on the left that want to break the establishment or the Trumpian folks on the right. But that force between like establishment and pop, what we call today popularism is still a force that that goes back to that initial Schism that happened in the 18th century. Now, you you ra- you you raised a po- another point, which is really important. On top of that schism, you have this also this duality between rational enlightenment thinking and counter enlightenment ideas, which could be based on faith or rejecting science. That has also been a big force, which is also chronicled in the book. And so that's also being played out today. People who reject science who reject what I call our enlightenment inheritance of using empirical data and reason to solve problems, which I argue in the book is so important. It's gotten us so far. And, co- and the need for compromise, that's being rejected in favor of a kind of a counter-enlightenment faith-based movement about ideological purity. And so that's another tension that's also described and chronicled across five periods of our history in the book. So uh,
0: I guess if, if I'm trying to put it into our modern world and I'm right. trying to kind of understand what are the timeless elements, you know, of, right. of some of these arguments, what I immediately am drawn to are, OK, clearly uh, we have only been benefited worldwide by the idea of a a. a Drive for scholarship knowledge and testing things rigorously against the evidence that we can that we can gather. We have been benefited by every phase of technology that has allowed us to do this clearer and faster from, you know, the printing press on. Yes. Um, Right. And yet then and now there can be a corruption. Of of understanding, we all understand. You know the the old uh, truism is you know there's lies, dirty lies, and and, and statistics, uh, right? But proving that like just because there is work done to find the answer does not necessarily mean it is even correct, let alone the right course for the country. If that is the tension, the the, the push and pull, and we can highlight the best case and the worst case scenarios of of either argument being, oh, well, these people look for truth, but yet can be corrupted by it. These people can call out the corruption and yet be intolerant when something absolutely makes sense. Then that does very much feel like America. It does (laughs) feel like it feels like we have described a large swath of our political
1: ideologies. Right. But what, what the key messages, I think, of American schism is really threefold. I mean, the first one is that, as you point out, you know, our embrace of uh, the, the constitution of knowledge, uh, this uh, this enlightenment framework of testing and the scientific method and using empirical data and reason, that has served us very well. I mean, 200 years ago, life expectancy was 30 years. Today, it's over 70 years. I mean, the prosperity from that framework is inarguable. Okay, number one. Number two, it's just that, that we can't throw away. And when you hear the discussion today about vaccines and science, it seems like a lot of society wants to throw away or at least dis- disregard that enlightenment framework that we do at our peril. Okay, that's the fr- that's one key point. The second point though is when you w- when you look at history and by the way, you know, the, the point is history can act as a salve for our wounds if only we apply it. What well, what the history shows is that we've always had these disagreements like we said before. But when we've compromised and worked together We've had a much better outcome in our history than when we have not yeah. like the Civil War. And so the, 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 what, what, what the, what, the second point is that we've got to forge a way to reinvent our democracy and figure out how to reject this current craziness of attacking each other nonstop. This, this dialogue of rancor and acrimony that dominates the debate. We have to reject that and find a more productive dialogue going forward. And that's what the book, American Schism, actually, in the third part of the book, I lay out a plan for how to do that.
0: Well, I want to get to that because I think that that is that is an interesting, uh, an interesting idea. You mentioned something that has stuck with me Uh, when discussing an almost anti-enlightenment attitude. You said the value of ideological purity is something that 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 tends to be associated with dismissing, let's say, a more objective, you know, classically understood objective kind of reality that could move forward. Right in the world of political media, right. I have seen almost uh, 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 I I might say, and this this might be my own point of view uh, because of the silo that I've surrounded myself with, but ideological purity throughout the political spectrum. Seems to be something that is very much rewarded. Uh, 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 Do you see that? uh, Do you see that? A and B is that something that that is? uh, If you look at this in the historical context, a good
1: or a bad thing for this for the health of our the health of our our union. That's a great point. It is very much rewarded, and in fact, I explain in the book that our entire political system, in my view, is broken because much more rewards purity and keep and and, and keeping uh, emotions high on ideological uh, wedge issues as opposed to solving problems. So, yeah. so one, one thing we didn't discuss. So I, you're absolutely right. But I think the political system is broken. I mean, I'm a, a private sector guy. Most of my career, I built, built businesses and leaders in the private sector are focused on, again, within this enlightenment framework. Using the best data and thinking they can, they're, they're trying to solve problems. I would argue that both the Republican and Democratic parties have figured out that keeping the anxiety going is how they win elections. And so, and and the media, by the way, on, on uh, especially in social media, but also cable news, tends to exaggerate those divisive issues. And so, so if 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 our political system, if our public leaders are focused on stirring up divisiveness and that that's what gets them elected then we have a problem because we're, we're not solving our public policy problems yeah. right so so I would so that is why we need a different path forward uh, and by the way some of the structural changes that I talk about in the book are in fact very much trying to get at this for example I will give you one example you know the, 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 we need a multi multi ranked choice voting multi multi candidate voting the two parties have a lock on power and it's been shown that ranked choice voting, and I can explain this in more detail, I don't know if you want to get into it, yeah, is a much well, better- Yeah, I, I, I've... I, I know the no, ranked choice voting to me is something that
0: I think tends to get a little overhyped. Uh, I, I, I think, I think, I think per- personally, and, and I, I live, I just moved from the Bay area, but I lived in the Bay area for nearly a decade. They've had ranked choice voting for the past, uh, uh I believe either 10 to 15 years. It hasn't exactly made the, that particular uh, area any more intellectually diverse than it was before. While I well. do think that it is, I, I am sympathetic to all ranked choice voting arguments. I think it tends to be thought of as a little bit more of a panacea than it
1: is. Well, there's a bunch of structural changes. I mean, that's one. I mean, clearly uh, there are issues with the Electoral College, which are going to be very hard to change. Uh, I argue in the book strongly for term limits, to because I think that that there's a stronger argument. There are both arguments for and against term limits. Yeah. But I think the, the weight has shifted when you see that how much money and energy is spent on reelection efforts. So anyway, so this, these structural changes are required, but, but maybe more importantly, we need a mindset change. And that's the other part of the path forward is how do we uh, kind of reorient how we talk to each other? Like I, I would argue that shows like yours where we're really debating and discussing issues in a little, in a little more depth are part of the solution. That, that headlines don't always, uh, tweets, for example, don't resolve problems. Discussion does and debate. And so going back to your point, I think ideological purity, while it's always useful to have strong beliefs and, and passionate arguments, they have to be moderated by pragmatic um, solutions. I mean, one of the one of the examples that I go into in American Schism is the period of time between the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, about 11 year history. Yeah. And. Why it's, it's so important to, to, for, for the example that you, 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 uh, you refer to. 1776, the, the era of 76 was a spirit of ideological purity. We, we had this very detailed document that explained why we had a rational right based on evidence to break away and form our own independent country based on inalienable rights. So it's all in the Declaration of Independence. But now, fast forward to when the war is won uh, 12 years later, 11 years later, all of a sudden, we had these very uh, real problems on the ground. Like, who was going to pay for the war? Yes. And as a young country, how are we going to have foreign alliances, which we desperately needed? You know, with 13 colonies on their own figure out how to regulate interstate commerce? So we had these real problems. And that's where the pragmatic, non ideological, for, and in the spirit mostly of Alexander Hamilton, it was like this genius, solutions were required, and and a compromise was required and that's why that period of time that those eleven years is illustrative of the the need for both ideological uh philosophy but also pragmatic compromise and that's what the constitution is
0: and that and so okay so so those are our two power setters the the soaring rhetoric of uh, of of self-determinism and our our ability to self-govern and then the actual idea of like okay well let, we're right congratulations we won this argument by way of, now of what do violence we do? now actually how do we survive how do we live and and you know that's that's it's one of the reasons why i think if you if you are a student of history you understand that you know revolutionaries don't always make the best governors you know when 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 when, when, right. when the revolutionaries wind up actually having to run things you wind up getting a lot of dead bodies uh, usually of the people that that started the revolution to begin with So it is remarkable. It is remarkable that everybody who started this system, you know, mostly died
1: happily of of, of old age, you know? Well, but but so, so look, but look at it this way. There were two parallel revolutions from the Enlightenment. Ours and the French Revolution. Yes. The French Revolution didn't end so well. No. Because that ideological craziness uh, pervaded to the reign of terror. And it was very, very bloody. Now, what happened in our country was, this debate, this, this back and forth became embodied in the two first political parties, in Alexander Hamilton's Federalists, which were pragmatic, solution-oriented, mm-hmm. and Jefferson, the Jeffersonian Republicans, which were ideological pure. So that that's where this schism, the first schism played out. Very, and it's very interesting to see what happened, which I won't, I won't give away all the, the fun. It's very, actually very, very fun to understand it from this perspective. But but in other countries, to your point. You know, when 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 ideological uh, purity tried to govern or uh, follow the revolutionary period, it was a disaster. And and we've seen that again and again in history.
0: You mentioned the five eras that you that you chronicle in the book, uh, presuming we are in one now and we began in the one that we were just talking about. What are the other three?
1: So the the, the first uh, key part, as I referred, is this period between the Declaration and the Constitution when we move from this ideological, what I call in the book, a radical enlightenment approach to a much more moderate approach. So, for example, the, the radicals wanted a democratic government of the people. Well, the Constitution ended up having, yes, a House of Representatives, which was proportional to people, yeah. but it also had a Senate. That was the elite running it. They weren't elected at all. So so there they, they are they were, they were elements of both. So that's the first period. The second period, which is very important to understand, is when Jefferson was president, the period of the Louisiana Purchase and what happened there in, in that period, because there was a, uh, you know, the, the great contradiction, of course, of the revolution was slavery and how that played out in the in the years leading up to and after the Louisiana Purchase is the second period examined. The third one, which is really interesting, is Reconstruction. And just to give you a little tidbit, in Reconstruction, by 1868, in the South, former slaves were registered in voting based on the Reconstruction Amendments at a rate of like 85% of African-American former slaves were voting. Mm-hmm. Fast forward 10 years to 1878, and only 5% were voting. So what happened in those 10 years? Well, Reconstruction failed. So the the Black Codes, which were the precursor to Jim Crow laws, were reinstituted all across the South. And you had extrajudicial forces in terms of things like the Ku Klux Klan intimidating people. So they were poll taxes. So now you went from 85% uh, uh, of franchisement of African-Americans down to 5%. In yes. ten years, that's yes. an example of how this pendulum moves all over the place. That's another period. The other one that's important is the the civil rights era. Wait, hold on, hold on, hold on. I want I want to stay there for a second. So,
0: okay, sure. In that situation, you have racist forces that are either in government or extra government, right? That to me seems like a corrupting ideal of elites forcing their view on a uh, body populace that doesn't and shouldn't and couldn't know better. Uh, uh, except this in this version, it is based on a racist ideology of of, of something like that. Uh, uh, would, would that be you know uh, consistent with with what with what the book explains that 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 was an example of absolutely corrupted, uh, uh, quote unquote, enlightenment thinking gone, gone horribly wrong?
1: Yes, th- there, are two, there are two key messages from that period. And by the way, each one of these five periods has an analysis of how these forces played out. So you're absolutely right. Structural racism as the way as being accepted as a government, which was contradictory to the notion of all are created equal. Yes. Was fundamentally uh, a top down installed and then and then, you know, uh, institution, if you will. But but the other key part that's really interesting is the radical movement ever since Jefferson and and Andrew Jackson of local government, of decentral, no, no central power. Yeah, it was this federalism system that let the southern states reestablish us basically a structurally uh, racist society uh, because they had local power. So the federalist argument was also a big part of how what became the solid South, as it's known, when the South kind of threw the the, the federal forces out and reestablished their 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 uh, antebellum society in many ways. That's that's discussed in the book at length, and so I think that's another important force that comes out of this from that period. Got you. Okay, so then I, I presume
0: the next uh, uh, epic would be the civil rights era.
1: Yeah, so there there you have the you know the civil rights movement through the Johnson years is is another one, and then of course the push. So that was a pendulum swing one way, and then you had. You ended up having, you know, Richard Nixon and the moral majority. So that, that's just, that that tension is described in that section. And then the last section, of course, is Obama and Trump. And why, you know, how if, if Obama is the first African-American president was representative. I mean, I mean, for example, you know, I quote in the book that when Obama was elected, if you looked at the front page of The New York Times, it, it, it was amazingly apocryphal. It talked about how with the election of the first African-American pe- president, We've swept away all senses of racism in the country and gone to a new <laughs> level. It sounded like it was like, and look where we are, you know, uh, ten years later. So, so my, my my point being is that there was this incredible uh, vision of hope and 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 kind of uh, uh, transcending a lot of our sins with Obama, and then we thought we were at a certain place, which became crashing back with Trump. So, I think this era is also one in which we've had these forces dueling back and forth. You know, I, I and and
0: I'm 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 fascinated by your your way of thinking, and the only thing that I would disagree with is that I don't know if that, although as loud as I can ever remember, politics at the time is necessarily quite as consequential or or even ideologically uh, as divisive as anything else that we have described in the past, mostly because. Look, yeah, the New York Times wrote about how we had won racism because Obama ran on a on, on a campaign of beat racism. Vote for me. It is it was right. literally hope right. and change. It was uh, this right. is the the, the the way that we can understand and, and conquer uh, our, 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 our past and prove to the world that, that we have conquered our original sin of slavery. Uh, meanwhile, there is a a ignoring of a populist trend, both on the right and the left, uh, for which a destabilizes Hillary Clinton when she runs again in 2016 on the left and then powers Trump to the White House on the right because he's able to find it out. But I, I don't know if any of that particularly is I mean, that to me, I see more of a, a fascinating story from like a political science perspective. And not necessarily quite the like fabric of society tearing in, in the way that the building of a structurally racist, uh, uh, you know, the block of states in the South was or the civil rights uh, or, of course, you know, our founding origin story of, of, of the dueling uh, agendas of our, of our founding fathers. But then, of course, we kind of are always biased on some level toward where we are in history. We are always biased
1: toward oh. being there. Well, I, I think you raise a very interesting point. But I, what I describe in the book is actually an explanation of what some of the underlying forces. So, for example, this, the, 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 the tremendous amount of rage and acrimony in the, in the case of working class Americans, especially rural white working class Americans, has been building up over years because of the disdain that both parties have shown them, whether it's yeah. Hillary Clinton's the best deplorables, or Mitt Romney's takers. So our our neoliberalistic capitalist structure has favored cities and elites at the expense of uns, less skilled white working class voters, and that's that rage has been built up for the last twenty years. Now it, it goes back to Reagan era. Now what's interesting is Trump figured out how to tap into it. Yes. So so I think there 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 are real real again i mean i uh, the, the the point is to look at history and understand it so that we can move forward in a productive way and i think uh, the analysis of course of this last era will be uh, continuing for the next 100 years i think people will be writing about january 6th for many many centuries in fact uh, i i believe but but my my point is is that if we go back to earlier periods we see important lessons uh, uh, one example that i would argue where there was a structural like a bottom up movement that was very powerful was the movement into the progressive era from the eight from the in the in the early 20th century from the, the 19th century there was the farmers alliance that was and the populist party that were really reacting to the power of big capitalism the railroads and steel the first big monopolies and that bottom up movement ended up leading to real progressive change that was done by both parties, by Teddy Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson. So so there are great examples of how bottom-up movements have led to actual changes in society. And that's, that's again, why history is important. Oh, a hundred percent. A hundred percent. Yeah. No, I, I don't, I don't want to, to uh, uh,
0: downplay how important these movements are, because I do think that they are uh, very, very important. The one thing that I would say that I think is different now is that our, like we have the receipts for everything. Like our Richter scale is right. so much more sensitive Than it was in in, in the past because of social media, because we have, I think, a a media very much in transition where before they were king media television uh, uh, primarily was king media for which there were a few gatekeepers that on the evening news would effectively dictate what we are talking about. Uh, uh, Add to that a few front pages, maybe a few magazines that is effectively the drumbeat for which we walk politically and societally now because they are in decline because their viewership is, is declining. They don't know where the audience is. The loudest audience is on social media. Everybody is chasing the most chaotic bottle rocket without a stem that we have ever seen in terms of uh, expression. And that is whatever happens on, on social media and happens to trend at any given moment. So, I think we are living in what feels like a less stable age than it really is because the fringes can be so vital and so vibrant and so immediate that the general tendency of, of, of society, I think sort of winds up getting drowned out because it's always going to be less boring than the person that's yelling and screaming that, that being said, I do think that there are very, very, very important things that are, are, are undeniable. I think that we are seeing the rise of a underclass of people for whom that feel left behind. I think that the defining political characteristic of our modern time is that people feel that power is moving further away from them. Yes. And yeah. if it hasn't already, it is close to moving so far away from them that they'll never be able to get it back. That's right. Uh, and That's and right. I think that that to me, if you if you look at that, I think a lot of other things make sense beyond, you know, what what our what our political rhetoric is.
1: Well, I, absolutely. So, so, you know, you, you you contrast two areas. There were a few controlling voices in uh, 20, 30, well 30 years ago when network news was a couple of key players. And there's a couple of key voices now, a lot of social media and some of the big cable channels. There's one diff- big difference, though. In that era, there was something called the Fairness Doctrine, which required uh, them to focus on those, those voices, had to focus on real news if they were going to use the public airways. There was a regulation. Yes. I mean, remember that information from an economics perspective is a public good. It benefits society when we have accurate information. That's yeah. why we have things like the FDA. So my point being, during that era, there was a a, a a system called the fairness doctrine. Now, because most of most new most of the big voices today don't use public airways, there's there's yeah. no regulation. So in today's model. What gets what, what gets media coverage is whatever gets clickbait, like clickbait, what gets what's outrageous the most and gets the most clicks or shouts or the entertainment of you know Fox News or MSNBC. Those are what gets that get advertising dollars. Now, we could argue whether there's a way to, to fix the, the media model, but the result is, to your point, and what I what I discuss in the book is that over 70 percent of Americans are part of what I call. The frustrated and exhausted majority, meaning that they they hear the screaming on the left and the right. Seventy percent believe that they, that that both sides don't represent what they feel. That, yeah. that in fact the voices that get that get crowd their voices get drowned out. The seventy percent by these extremes, and it seems as if the extremes are all that exist. When I, I, I very much argue that this seventy percent frustrated majority needs to take back the conversation it, because the conversation is to some degree being driven by those on the extreme left and right. And as a consequence, the lunatics are running the asylum and, and the, the, the the exhausted majority has to throw that throw that out and refocus on rational thinking and compromise. So that also
0: is a the theme of the book. I I I very much I very much agree with that. And one of the things that I have you know, tried to kind of uh, uh, illustrate here with this philosophically with this podcast is, you know, I I've always been fascinated with politics when we're not talking about politics as a country. I, I like to read and talk about politics because that's just what my interest is. But right. even as somebody who has watched these cycles play out throughout my entire life, usually there's an off season. And, yes. and even when we're talking about beyond the Fairness Doctrine and beyond whether or not people would be able to say a certain thing or say a not certain thing, the gatekeepers, for whatever you can revile them, and America loves taking down gatekeepers, it's kind of our thing, uh, they stop talking about politics after the election, generally, unless there was a massive th- a war or or something else that was like enough to push in front of all other news stories. Usually there was other things to talk about in the intervening four years. We're done with that. At least we have That's been right. for the past, you know, uh, uh, eight years plus now. Like we are, it is always on, you are always talking about it. We are always as ramped up as we have ever been It, it fundraising is 24, seven messaging is 24, seven. And what's weird to me is that like, normally there was like in a, in a campaign, you have a natural kind of suspension of humanity. You know, your opponent isn't just a bad guy. They're the worst guy. The, the outcomes aren't just bad. They're they're apocalyptic. And then when it's over, you shake hands and you say, hey, okay, look, I was uh, everybody was doing their best. There we go. Go on. Slap uh, your opponent on the butt and move on. Uh, uh, we're done with that.
1: It's like you're, you're always that. the Are worst. You just- you're the worst forever. You're absolutely right. There used to be a period of like a, a kind of a, an opportunity for bipartisanship after the election cycle when we could get solve problems. That was my point before about the whole political system is broken. Now, the most important thing always is not is to demonize the enemy to, 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 to put something in a political context where if you're if you're a Republican, the Democrats are ruining America. And if you're a Democrat, the Republicans are 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 are. are you know, ruining democracy. So, so it's always about demonizing the enemy. I mean, and this goes—it was most vivid at when Obama first got elected. When I think it was Mitch McConnell who stated very proudly that the the entire goal of of the, the Republican caucus was going to be to stop any progress. I mean, when, when we get to a point where after an election, let me let me give you an example because I think this this epitomizes the problem. Mitch McConnell said at that point, I think when the Republicans took control of the Senate that the quote was this, elections have consequences, winners make policy, losers go home, okay? Yeah. Now, yeah. Right, that to me is the exact opposite of what a democracy entails. A dem- what a democracy, the way the, the democracy is supposed to work, and, and Daniel Allen, the professor from Harvard, has written a lot about this. Demo- when, when you win an election, what that gives the winner is the, the opportunity to chair the conversation, to hold the gavel. But the first thing the winner should do immediately, which is completely contradictory to Mitch McConnell's quote, is invite the loser back into the conversation and get some work done, solve some problems. See, that's, yeah. that's the part yeah. of, it's not always about elections and fighting. It's about problem solving. And that's the cycle to, you know, you, you're, very, you're, actually, you're very accurate by saying there used to be this kind of cycle of an election and then a period of problem solving. Uh, and that's gone. And we have to reestablish that. So that's why, to me, the infrastructure bill was so interesting, how the, the Republicans, you know, infrastructure bills are always everyone always loves them because, you know, it, it brings dollars back to the community. So for the first yeah. time, the Republicans that supported the infrastructure bill were, were demonized. By the the, the, by by voices on the right just for signing on to a bipartisan piece of legislation that that to me is a great example or illustration of how tricky. The political environment has well, and and
0: and you know, it was the seeds of uh, uh, Kirsten Cinema being so demonized on the left that that they're going to primary her. So it's like, right, right. and 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 this was, you know, so I I think it's 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 fascinating to see where the cost of bipartisanship is when you know when you look at the polling, it seems like that's what voters want, and and it is it is one of the most baffling elements of the Biden presidency to me that. Especially if they wind up going forward with this Electoral Count Act uh, uh, reform, his two biggest legislative victories will be the bipartisan infrastructure bill and a bipartisan election reform. And in another world where he just focused on touting, look at me, I'm bipartisan Joe doing bipartisan things. I feel like he'd be more popular than he is now where in both of those acts, he has made them booby prizes that are awful because they should have gotten another gigantic, bigger glittering thing that might've been unrealistic to begin with. But well, that's right.
1: And I think you're exactly, you're exactly right. But, but I I think that the other, when I, when I talked before about how we need a mindset change, you know, to some degree, because so much of the political dialogue and, and digisphere is entertainment today, it's it, it, bipartisanship is boring. It's, it's more fun to shout at each other and scream. It's very entertaining. I mean, yeah. you know, the analogy that I make in the book is that it, we all have these primitive impulses of attacking the, the out group and reinforcing the in group. Like when you go to a football game or a hockey game, that that all comes out and you don't want to tie in the game. The bipartisanship would mean like the game is tied and it ends. No one wins. So so it, it bipartisanship is if your frame of reference is in a in a basketball arena, bipartisanship is pretty boring. And that's why we have to change our change our frame of reference and solve problems. I could go on and on about this, Justin, but I like immigration is an example that I use and I think is really important because the gang of eight about eight years ago had a bipartisan approach to how to address the many, many issues related to immigration yeah. that had bipartisan support. Now, now that bill, the, the, that reform of Im- the immigration reform bill was deep, was hated by both the extreme left and right. The left hated it because it had things like quotas and the right hated yeah. it because it had pathway to citizenship for dreamers. But my point being, it was a comprehensive approach to resolve a bunch of real problems now. So that gets that doesn't pass. And now we've been shouting at each other about open borders and build walls, and then eight years later, we're much further away from any solutions. so So yeah. unless we're going to compromise, because immigration are, we have real problems. so So again, my point is that we're going to have to forge uh, bipartisan solutions, and because our political system right now so uh, disincentivizes bipartisanship, we're in trouble. And if we want to if we want to be able to hand our democracy, a functioning republic to our kids, we better wake up and and move on some of these changes.
0: Well, if you want to read a thought provoking book with these themes explained in detail and much more, what you're going to want to do is read American Schism by Seth Redwell, who has been our guest today. Uh, Seth, is there any a specific place that you want people to go buy the book or, or, or anything Hell, like that? America-
1: Yeah, American Schism is available, of course, at Amazon, Barnes & Noble. There's also a site called americanschismbook.com, which they can go to. americanschismbook.com. All right. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for joining us.
0: And that'll wrap it up for us today. Politics, Politics, Politics is written and hosted by me, Justin Robert Young, for Dog & Pony Show Audio. In Austin, Texas. Hey, go ahead and uh, thank Seth for taking time out of his day to speak with us by heading on over to px3guest.com right now. Because he's new. If you liked what he said? Let him know. Say, hey, I heard you on px3. Thank you. Especially if you get his book, then let him know especially when the new guests come on. We always want to make them feel welcome. px3guest.com. If you'd like to email me, it is theyoungamerican at gmail.com. PX3 Tweets is where you can follow the show on Twitter. px3live.com is where I am live on the internet Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. You can share this podcast with your friends and family and clergy. px3podcast.com. You can get all of our politics merch at politicsmerch.com. Support me with a one-time donation by going to paypal.me slash payjury. That is P-A-Y-J-U-R-Y. Venmo is Justin-Young-20. Cash app is PX3 Cash. And you can send me anything you'd like in the mail. P.O. Box 1531-84, Austin, Texas, 78715. Again, that is post office box 153184 Austin, Texas, 78715. Of course, you can always get our bonus content at takepoliticsseriously.com. $3 tier gets you two bonus podcasts per week, covering all the news that we miss on our free podcast schedule. $10 tier gets your name read at the end of the podcast, like these fine folks in the Titanic. $10 here, Idris and DJ Katie Mack, Nemeister, Dr. G-Lord, Scale, Akinse Anile, Admiral Flapjack, Utah Jimmy Montana, Edmund Pluribus Unum, Beat Spicery, 70s TV Salesman, or Spy? D, really? And Gloria Young, or King of the New World Order. Zombie Doc Edison, no mention in the podcast, please.com Junkie, DP4 Bongo, Jewish Lives Matter, 100 Mile Runner, Staff Sergeant Poopers, Diana's Scathing Scowls, Double K Ranch, Ye Old Pinball Shop, John Snuffy's off Route 44, Super Zumi, Neil, Charles, Darren, Olin, and Angela, DL. Steven, Chad, Miranda, Janelle, Chief Andy, Robert, Casey, Paul, Richard, D. Laser, Just Another Pilot, Middle Age, Mike, The Gen, J. Pink, and Andrew. Would you dare, dare like to join their hollowed ranks? Well, if you'd like to, you can head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. On the next edition of Politics, 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 the Friday edition, we are going to have something that I know is going to cheese off. I've mostly heard this as a pejorative from the progressive left. A defense of quote unquote. Both sides should indeed, even from a partisan perspective, we'd be spending more time understanding the position of those across the aisle. I feel like these two conversations between the one we had today and the one that we'll have Friday kind of dovetailed together, but you will be the judge. That is Friday. Till next time. This is your old pal, Justin Robert Young, saying some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more discuss politics. But this, this is the only program that dares discuss